Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from Mark 8, 27 to 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Father, we ask, that you, by your Spirit, would quiet our hearts. Would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your Word. Uh, and would deepen our walk, deepen our trust with you and in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Is that my fault, Neil? It's not my fault. Just wait on it for a second here. Well, good morning. Good morning. Come on. Good morning. Good morning. I was, I was preaching at a lovely uh, sister church last week, and I did the good morning thing, and everyone was like, nothing. And so I was like, I'm going to go back to, to Christ City next week, and I'll be a good morning. There'll be a big good morning back, and then you gave me that. So thank you for that. It's good to be with you. Next week, we're beginning our series in Proverbs for the summer. I'm very excited to be in the book of Proverbs and growing wise together with you. This week, however, we're ending our series in Mark, going through the first eight chapters, looking at this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is the last of our eight weeks together asking this question. And our first week in our series... 
I said that we need to ask this question because there is no, there is no historical figure so likely to be manipulated or twisted according to our liking and made in our image in the person of Jesus. We love to take Jesus and make him like us or into a God that we prefer. We all want to claim Jesus for ourselves, don't we? And the great tragedy we saw is that the Jesus we're left holding is not the Jesus who was and the Jesus who is. This morning, as we conclude our time asking this question, I think, I think we get to the why, the why that's behind the fact that we create a Jesus in our likeness and image according to our preferences. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Well, this morning, as we ask one last time, who is Jesus? We discover the dangerous truth that Jesus' identity is wrapped up with our identity. That the identity of Jesus is wrapped up with my identity and your identity. That his life will provide the shape of our lives. His messiahship informing our discipleship. Do I need a handheld, Paul? No? Are you sure I don't need a handheld? We're going to look at Peter's confession, Jesus' crucifixion, and I can shout if we need to, our cross. First, Peter's confession. If you have your Bibles open, look at uh, Mark 8, 27. Put your finger on that. If you need a Bible, we have some at the back. Take it, keep it. It's our gift to you if you don't have one at all, okay? This morning, as we go to Mark 8.27, there's a turn in Mark's gospel. A turn, both in the content and the theme of Mark's gospel, but also literally. See, up until this point, if you've been tracking Jesus, if Jesus had a little GPS attached to him, you would see that Jesus has been crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee, kind of going back and forth. And it would look like sort of a chicken with his head cut off, going everywhere. But now as we get to Mark 8, Jesus turns. Jesus turns. And he sets his face towards Jerusalem. Look at verse 27 with me. In verse 27 we read, Jesus set out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way. On the way. Let's stop there. This refrain on the way, or, or something like that, will come up nine times between Mark 8 and Mark 12. On the way, or as they went. And again, while this firstly and most importantly refers to Jesus, and Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem to go on his journey to be a ransom for many, he says in Mark 10, it also speaks to our journey, speaks to our walk. It's used in reference to the disciples' journey, both in Mark's gospel and in our lives today. Jesus's followers are meant to follow him on the way, as they go. And how does every discipleship journey begin? Every following journey begin with a confession of who Jesus is. And so I stop, and again I ask this morning: Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus to be? How you answer that question is of vital importance to us this morning. 
Like a boat captain who begins their journey just a few degrees off and ends up on a different continent, right? An entirely different nation. So too must we begin with the right bearings, with precise clarity, and with precision when it comes to the identity of Jesus. And one of the ways that Jesus drives to clarity and precision with his disciples concerning his identity is to first define who he's not. Who he's not. Look at verse 27 again, all the way to verse 28 this time. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Which is a dangerous question to ask, right? Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So, so Jesus asks, again, which is a dangerous question, what are the crowd saying about me? What, what are the papers writing about me? What's the buzz on social media about me? What, what are the gurus and the sages uh, saying about my person and, and my ministry? What, what's happening about me? And, and the disciples respond with something like this. Basically, the, the three options they offer, according to R.T. France, the scholar, all fall into the category of some sort of prophet. You're some sort of prophet, Jesus. That's what they're saying about you. Either you're a recently dead prophet, so John the Baptist, come back to life, or a long dead prophet like Elijah, come back to life, right? Even though he got carried up into heaven. Or you're just a prophet who will soon die here now with us. But either way, you're a prophet. Now, we hear that today and we think, well, they missed it. But, but let's not miss, in, in the first century, in Jesus' world, to obtain the title or status of prophet is no small feat. Jesus is a well-respected man. He's a good guy, we could say. He's spiritually insightful, right? He has a bit of a following to him. And maybe you think the same about Jesus. Maybe you think that Jesus is one amongst many philosophers, one amongst many prophets, one amongst many good guys who lived and eventually died. If you do, if you think that this morning, you must see that Jesus is speaking to you and is not content to let the conversation end, let the conversation die with people thinking he's a good guy or even a spiritual guy. He presses the issue. Jesus always does this. He presses the issue. He sees your heart and my heart and he presses the issue. Listen, verse 29. Having heard the disciples say what they say and, and uh, appeal to the crowd the way they do, he then asks him, well, what do you say? Verse 29, and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? L listen, if you're here, you're maybe a kid or a teen or you're just new or exploring this Jesus stuff, it is not enough that your parents confess Jesus as Lord or your friends confess Jesus as Lord or for generations, your very respected family has confessed Jesus as Lord. Jesus always presses the issue and says, who do you say I am? 
Don't look to your left. Don't look to your right. You. Your name. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks each of us individually the same question. He presses the issue. Now, if you're feeling the pressure this morning, maybe you're new or visiting or kind of dancing around the teachings of Jesus, I also want to point out something else. In Mark's gospel, notice where this question comes. It doesn't come at the beginning of his journey with his disciples. In fact, it comes after a long time with his disciples. Jesus has eaten with these men. He's taught the crowds. They've witnessed his teaching. He's done many powerful acts. He's patiently and repeatedly and tirelessly explained to them what he's talking about, even though they frequently fail to understand. Notice the patience Jesus has, the patience he has with his disciples. This is months, if not a year, into this journey. And so if you're new or visiting and you're like, wow, this sounds like a lot of pressure, I want to remind you and I want to remind all of us that Jesus is patient with us. He's tender to us. And if you're part of this church and you have friends and family that you hope to know Jesus one day, you need to be reminded this morning, as I needed to be reminded this week, that Jesus is more patient than we are. Jesus plays a longer game than we do. But no... No, still, it remains. The question comes to every person, who do you say I am? And Peter, in a shining, brilliant moment, before it goes all downhill really quickly, he says in verse 29, Peter answered him, he says, you are the Christ. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, you're the king. You're the anointed one, come to rescue God's people. He's saying, Jesus, you're the guy who's come to bring God's kingdom and usher in an era of peace. He's saying, Jesus, you're the guy. You're the goat. You're the one we've been waiting for. That's what Peter's saying here. But, see this, like the blind man. Do you remember the blind man from last week? Like the blind man from last week from Bethsaida, who in the first stage of his healing sees, but sees blurry, sees fuzzy, sees people, but they look like trees walking, so too does Peter in this moment only see Jesus partially, fuzzily. Jesus like a tree walking. We don't know for sure what's going on in the mind of Peter, but the rest of Mark's gospel and actually the setting of our text today helps us understand. See, they are in the villages outside of Caesarea Philippi. And in this region, this man named Judas, not Judas the disciple of Jesus, but Judas the Galilean, he came from this area. And in AD 66, Judas's sons would lead an armed revolt and they would eventually be put down. But, but Judas, Judas the Galilean, was the founder of this, this military group called the Sicarii. Kind of like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you had the Sicarii, where the assassins or, or these dagger men. And so here's Jesus, and here's Peter, and maybe Peter has drunk of the revolution that's in the air. He feels it, right? In the rural areas, these people oppressed by the Roman powers are gathering together and thinking, maybe it doesn't have to be like this. 
And so maybe Peter's already thinking, oh, I, I could lead a battalion. Maybe Peter's already thinking, I can get retribution on all those who oppressed me, all those who stole from me. And maybe Peter's already thinking about the rewards, the, the riches and the fine wine that, that come with being on the right side of history. Again, it's Peter's fuzzy understanding of Jesus' messiahship that leads Jesus to again command the disciples to silence in verse 30. For, as our next point will make clear, Peter's confession and ours must somehow be squared away with Jesus' crucifixion. Peter's confession, our confession, must be squared away with Jesus' crucifixion. Look at our second point. Jesus' crucifixion. So Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand what you mean when you say that, Peter. Let me clarify for you. Look at verse 31. And he began, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. I love that phrase, and he said this plainly. He said it clearly. He said it obviously. And Peter, after receiving this plain teaching, this obvious teaching, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, so notice that, that Jesus takes Peter's confession and the title that Peter gives to Jesus, Christ. He says, that's right, that's good, you understand, at least fuzzily, I'm going to fill it out for you. I'm going to give it color for you with giving another title to you. It says, I'm the son of man, Jesus says. Son of man, Jesus is saying, must inform your image of the Christ or the anointed one, the, the, the Messiah. Now, we've talked about this a bit uh, before, but the son of man is a title that comes to us from, from Daniel chapter 7. It's this Old Testament book. And it's a title that Jesus takes on, in Mark's gospel at least, not to emphasize his humanity, as the title might suggest, but in fact to emphasize his divinity, that Jesus is God. The, the Son of Man in Daniel, in Daniel 7 is God's servant who's given authority. Let, let me just read for you what Daniel sees in the vision that Daniel is given. Verse 13 of Daniel 7. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came, listen, one like a son of man. That's where this comes from. And he came to the Ancient of Days and, he was, and was presented before him. And to him, this is the son of man, to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who is the son of man? L listen. The, the son of man is a, a king. A king so amazing he sounds divine, otherworldly. The son of man is presented to the ancient of days. He's near the ancient of days but yet separate from the ancient of days, distinct from 
him. And yet, the Son of Man receives what only God can rightly receive. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. What's more, we learn that the Son of Man, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And all of this accords, all of this makes sense with what we've seen of Jesus so far in our series over the last seven weeks, doesn't it? Daniel 7 fits with the authority to heal a blind man. Daniel 7 fits with the authority and Jesus' authority to cast out demons. Daniel 7, in that vision, fits with Jesus saying, stop to a storm, and the storm stopping. We could even say that Daniel 7 fits with Peter's militaristic vision of the Christ. And so if the gospel of Mark is like a glass of water that is being filled with all these things, it seems as we're leading to this inevitable triumphalistic conclusion In verse 31, it's like in this gospel, the glass is tipping. And all the hopes and dreams and exciting things that that Mark was building towards now turn and spill. And it's confusing. We don't know what to do with it. The Son of Man will accomplish these things, Jesus says, not by the sword, but by the cross. The Son of Man will accomplish these things, Jesus says, not by shedding the blood of others, like every other king and every other ruler, but by pouring out his blood and rising again. Jesus says, the Son of Man, did you notice, look at it, the Son of Man must do this. He must suffer many things and be rejected, not by like uneducated people, not not by those on the fringe, but, but by the theologically informed, the elders, the, the chief priests, and the scribes. This word must is doing a lot of work in our text this morning. A lot of work. What's it doing? It's telling us that this was God's plan all along. It's telling us that this plan for the Son of Man to suffer these things for the salvation of his people was God's plan all along. So, you might not find a suffering servant in Daniel 7, but you do find a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah said this, that he, this suffering servant, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, this is Jesus, Upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The word must is reminding us that this was God's plan all along, but it's doing more. This word must is telling us that the greater liberation we need is not from tyrannical earthly powers, but from Satan and from sin. 
One author writes, Dane Ortland, he says this, circumstantial liberation required a kingly Messiah and a kingly Messiah alone. But spiritual liberation, real liberation, required a kingly Messiah who would himself be bound like a criminal so that his followers could be liberated in the only sense that ultimately matters. It's reminding us, this word must, that the greater liberation we need is not from these tyrannical earthly powers, but from greater powers of evil in our life and in this world. Remember, Jesus binds the strong man. Finally, this word must is telling us that just as Jesus must walk this road, so must we, so must you, so must I. And perhaps that's why Peter feels the need to rebuke Jesus. Not only did a suffering king, a suffering Messiah, not compute with Peter's theology, I also think a suffering Messiah didn't compute with Peter's life plans and his vision board, right? The goals and the dreams. So what happens next? Did you see that in our story? It's one of the most preposterous events in all the gospel. Peter takes Jesus. Peter takes the Son of Man. Peter takes the Messiah. Peter takes the second person of the Trinity aside and begins to rebuke him. Like I would take my child aside and rebuke my child. It, it is it's utterly ludicrous. It's insane. It makes me cringe just like thinking about it. And so, did you notice in our text that Jesus, he sees his disciples watching all this. It says he turns and he sees his disciples. He sees them watching Peter's rebuke. He sees them watching what Peter is saying and what Peter is teaching. And Jesus, unsurprisingly, has a rebuke in store of his own. Right? So what's up, Peter? Like, I'd be afraid, Peter. And so it says in verse 33... Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, listen, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, so why is Jesus' rebuke so harsh? He calls Peter not a servant of Satan, not a representative of Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. He sees in Peter's actions the very work and forces of the evil one. He says, get behind me, Satan. See, Peter, Peter is leading his brothers and sisters in Christ down a dangerous path. So Jesus' harshness of rebuke is not just for Peter, but for all those who are watching. Peter's misunderstanding and opposition to Jesus' ministry, Jesus' messiahship, is not just a threat to Peter, it's a threat to all who would follow Jesus. It's a threat to others who think liberation or salvation could be achieved without a cross. But Jesus reminds us 
There is no true liberation outside of his crucifixion. There is no true payment of sin outside of his cross. Jesus has in mind with this rebuke not only Peter's well-being, but our well-being. Your well-being. You and me prone to setting our mind, listen, on the things of man and not the things of God. You and me prone to creating a religion of victory after victory, success after success, where we get rich and we prosper, and that's all that matters. This is why Christianity, to me, can't be fake. No one would invent a religion like this. No one would invent a, a, a savior like this, right? If you were to show up at your local sort of military headquarters and say, I want to enlist, what do they tell you? Well, you're probably going to die. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You know, no, no, no. They're trying to sell you on the vision. You know, you can get your education paid for, right? Go see the world. No one builds a movement like this. No one. See, Peter's confession has no room for Jesus' crucifixion because the crucifixion of Jesus has implications for the shape of our life, for the shape of our discipleship. And that's where Jesus leads us now. This is our last point. Peter's confession, Jesus' crucifixion, our cross. Our cross. Jesus seizes on Peter's misunderstanding of his messiahship to call, to call together the wider crowd, it's a wider crowd now, to teach all, all who are in earshot of the true nature of discipleship. In verse 34, we read this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, notice again, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. If you've been in the church for a while, it's really easy to gloss over these words. It, it's really easy. You want to put it back on the screen, James? It's really easy to, to gloss over this text and say, I've heard it. I get it. I understand it. And, and to miss the radical nature of what Jesus is doing here. See, you and I talk about, you know, bearing our cross in reference to things like having a tough mother-in-law. Right? That's my cross to bear. Just got to endure it. Or like having a bad boss, right? That, that's my cross to bear, right? We miss the radical nature of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross, and it is no small thing. See, for Jesus' first listeners, this language was gruesome. Gruesome. About a hundred years before Mark 8. And the events of Mark 8, maybe you saw the film, but a man named Spartacus led a slave rebellion against Rome. It happened apparently fairly often, 
A hundred years before these events, Spartacus led this rebellion, and about 6,000 of his followers who joined him in this rebellion were crucified along the, I think it's called, let me get it right, the Appian Way, this road that is today between Rome and Naples. 6,000 people, imagine this, lining that road, crucified, dying a slow and agonizing and bloody and horrific death. And, and so none of Jesus' listeners would have actually been alive for that, but they would have known the stories. The tale would have been told, don't, don't rise up, don't make too much trouble, this is what awaits you. This kind of death, this kind of mass scale horror and genocide, that's what awaits you. So, so we think about taking up our cross and we're like, okay, I'm going to do a hard thing. We kind of miss it. Jesus' followers heard, deny yourself, take up your cross, and they heard, enter into sure and certain death. And again, we're going to talk about following Jesus and hard things as we go here in a bit. But for the first century followers of Jesus, even second, third century followers of Jesus, this meant, more often than not, literal death. Like being fed to the beasts. Like being crucified upside down, as was Peter's case. So Jesus, using this graphic language, says essentially, come follow me and die. And it seems as if Jesus is working against himself. But notice there are four, F-O-U-R, fours in our text, F-O-R's. There are four fours in our text that are Jesus' reasons why we ought to pick up our cross as well. And we'll end with these. The first four, F-O-R, is this. Remember, there are four, F-O-U-R, of them. First is this, Mark 8, 35. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Why must we take up our cross? Because Jesus wants to save us. Here's the, here's the great irony and the tragedy, really, of our day, is we think that in preserving our life, in keeping our life, in finding our best life now, in finding our most authentic self, that we can find life. We think in being the captain of our soul, the master of our fate, of our destiny, we can find life and life itself. But Jesus says, paradoxically, if you do that, if you hold on to your life, it's like strangling a bird, it eventually dies. So tightly, this is my life, and it dies. Jesus says, paradoxically, if you want to find your life, you must lose your life in me and with me and join me on the way. There's no life outside of that. Jesus says these things not because he's a miser, not because he's cruel, but because he loves us and he knows that living according to our flesh, living according to our old desires, is death itself. And if you're wondering, well, this does this apply to all of my life. Do I have to follow Jesus with all of my life? I think one commentator said it well when he says this. He says the whole person, think of the totality of who you are, the whole person stands under Christ's claim. And Christ does not claim us to enslave us. Christ claims us so that we might have life and life to the fullest. That we might live the way we were always created to live. 
So why must we take up our cross? Because Jesus wants to save us and give us the life he knows we need. Second, why must we take up our cross? Because it's just good math. It's just good math. Look at the next two fours, F-O-R's, in our text this morning. Look at verse 36 and 37. Four, Jesus wants us to think rationally here. Wants us to to think logically here. He wants to involve our brains in this discipleship decision. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? If you're wondering, those are hypothetical questions. The answer to both is nothing. Nothing. And, And we all know that Hollywood trope, right? Of the person reaches the end of their life rich, successful, famous, but on the way they've had to sacrifice their morality, their family, whatever. They've made a trade, they've made a bargain, and they're on the losing end. We don't have to be rich and famous to fall for this trap. Jesus is inviting us to think logically here. And again, the great paradox is that in all of this, is that those who would strive to keep their soul, preserve their soul, enrich their soul, ultimately don't know the soul's worth. Ultimately don't know the soul's value. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can lead a brilliant life. A brilliant life. Full of vacations and cars and and the finest food. And you can lead a brilliant life and, and forfeit your soul. And Jesus invites you to do some math this morning. Which brings us to our fourth four. Four. Why must we take up our cross? Why must we follow Jesus in death? That we may be saved. That our life may be kept for the day of Jesus' return. If our discipleship is to take the same shape as Jesus' messiahship, it means... Not only do we join Jesus in his death, but we join Jesus in his triumphal resurrection return as well. In his eternal life as well. Life that begins now and life that will experience full, in full at his return. Look at verse uh, 38 with me. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulteress that is unfaithful, unfaithful and sinful generation, of him, notice, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Son of Man comes first in weakness, but the Son of Man returns in power. Do you see that? Jesus is returning, and with him comes glory and holiness. And with his glory and his holiness, he comes into a world that has lusted after other gods and lusted after our own self-interest. Jesus will come into this world that is adulterous and sinful to bring all who are his to himself. And so here are the crossroads. Here's the crossroad we're left with this morning. On one hand, we have shame. On the other hand, we have joyful reception. Shame or joyful reception. Those who are ashamed of Jesus in this generation will be the object of shame at the end. Shame leading to shame. And those who receive Jesus, 
who are not ashamed of Jesus, not ashamed of his gospel, in this generation will be received by Jesus in the age to come. Friends, we began this series by saying something like, Jesus is infinitely better than you can imagine. And he is. We end by saying, the life that Jesus has come to offer is infinitely better than you imagine. And it's a matter of life and death. It might not look like you thought. It will require you to surrender your self-determination and your autonomy. It will feel often like death. But make no mistake about it, there is life in no one else. No one else other than Jesus. Let's pray. So Jesus, we come this morning unable on our own, by ourselves, to, to, to die to our flesh and die to our own vision boards of what we want our life to look like. So I pray that you would save us from ourselves. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, free us from the better life, free us for the better life you have for us? Would you help us to see that your Messiahship is to inform our discipleship. That your cross is to form and give shape to our lives as well. Would you be with us as we go? Would you give us faith to believe that what you have for us is good and right and just, even when we can't see it? We love you, Jesus. You're so gracious, so kind, so patient with us. Amen.